talks on psychoanalysis shares topics published in the IPA Society Journals and Congress Debates Worldwide, brought you in the voices of the original authors. We hope this window will allow you to experience the depth and breadth of psychoanalytic thought around the world. This podcast has been created by Gaetano Pellegrini and edited by Gaetano Pellegrini and Andy Cohen. Introduction read by Andy Cohen. In today's episode, Cordelia Schmidt-Hillerau will present her talk titled Driven to Preserve Self and Object, where she eloquently investigates the structuring function of the object in tension with the subject and its drives the role of the aggression as an intensified expression of a need, and her original term lethe, describing the energy of these preservative drives. Cordelia Schmidt-Hellerau is a training and supervising analyst of the Boston Psychoanalytic Society and Institute and the Swiss Psychoanalytic Society. She's published numerous papers and three books on metapsychology, clinical issues, and applied psychoanalysis. Since 2017, she has been the chair of the IPA and Culture Committee. Driven to Preserve Self and Object In this podcast, I want to invite you to consider with me a psychoanalytic concept that has great potential to advance our understanding of the human mind in health, in neurosis, and in more severe psychopathology. The basic question may sound daunting. How does the mind work? Given its complexity, will we ever be able to grasp at least some of it? Why did Freud devote so much time trying to figure it out? Why would we nowadays care about? As psychoanalysts, we treat patients who suffer. So isn't it enough to help our patients resolve their problems? But how can we do this? Do we simply need to be empathic, gifted, and eventually experienced in what we are doing? Clearly, those qualities, while desirable, wouldn't distinguish us from a well-meaning friend or from anyone practicing any form of psychotherapy. In order to analyze specific mental disturbances, we need a general theory of how the mind normally works, because This allows us to see more clearly how exactly particular problems occur. Psychoanalysis assumes, as all other sciences about humans do, that there are certain general laws, in this case, laws that determine the functioning of the mind. These laws or principles of mental functioning, partly derived from clinical work, and partly inferred from other forms of thinking, are organized in Freud's metapsychological model of the mind, his so-called psychic apparatus. Metapsychology evolved over many years, in sometimes complicated or roundabout ways, which makes it difficult to comprehend its main threads. I will present in straight, simple terms some general guidelines of a psychoanalytic theory of the mind with special emphasis on the concept of drives. The basic model of the mind rests on only two notions, drive and structure. The drives provide the mind with energy. The structures organize and balance these energies, and that's homeostasis. 
the drives link the physiological with the psychological needs and desires. That's the body-mind connection. And the structures, which are based on our experiences and stored in memory traces, represent what these needs and desires are. To put it differently, without drives, we wouldn't want anything. And without structures, we wouldn't know what we want. The drives move us towards the object. The structures guides these, guide these moves because they represent the object, sort of show us where the object is. Thus we can say, the drives link the body with the mind and the subject with the object. Thus, drive theory is essentially an object relations theory. All elements of our experience are associated and represented in our structures. It's the drive energies that activate these structures and give us the ideas we pursue. We could say structures are like light bulbs. They only shine when they receive electric or drive energy. So it's quite puzzling to me when some psychoanalysts claim that we can do fine without the drives. I would say, without drives, we would be stuck in the dark. Freud started out postulating two primal drives, uh, a self-preservative and a sexual drive, hunger and love. Whether on purpose or merely by intuition, he arranged them as antagonists in his theory, which was a crucial step because it is the interaction between two antagonists that can keep a system like the mind in a dynamically stable position. Imagine, if you add energy to the one side, the system tilts. If you add a comparable amount of energy to the other side, it evens out. Freud refers to this tendency towards keeping the system balanced as the pleasure principle. We find the antagonism of the two primal drives represented in pairs such as drive, pressure, and repression, wish and defense, even conscious and unconscious. It manifests itself in conflicts, compromise formations, symptoms, dreams, ambivalence, and in fact, in all mental operations. All are generated, energized, and held by the two antagonistic drives. From 1895 until 1920, Freud defined the drives as the body's demand on the mind, and he distinguished between the needs of self-preservation and the desires of sexuality as primal motivating forces. His ideas about aggression shifted somewhat. In 1905, Freud understood aggression as a capacity of the sexual drives necessary to overcome any resistance of the sexual object. In 1909, he saw it as a potential of both primal drives 
since both needed to be able to override obstacles on their way to satisfaction. Finally, in 1915, Freud thought that aggression initially arose in the service of self-preservation, since the infant's delicate organism needed a way to fight off life-threatening stimuli. In these three conceptions, aggression was seen as a means to an end, an energetic enhancement in the service of satisfaction. It was only in 1920, in his famous essay Beyond the Pleasure Principle, that Freud fundamentally changed this conception and decided to call the two primal drives life drive, or eros, and death drive. However, he struggled with the transition from his first to his second drive theory. Eventually, Freud decided to unite the self-preservative and sexual drives under the broader concept of a life drive with libido as the energy of both, while aggression and destruction were seen to represent the death drive. In consequence of this shift, aggression was no longer understood as a means to an end, but as an end in itself. It was elevated to the position of a primal drive, still without a fitting energy term other than the provisional notion of aggressive energy. And the self-preservative drives, which were always at the margin of Freud's research, now submerged as libidinal under the notion of eros, almost completely faded from his further clinical and theoretical considerations. Ever since 1920, then, psychoanalysis has operated with sexuality and aggression as the two primal drives and motivating factors in mental life. I think this last move was a mistake, a misconception that lies at the root of the psychoanalytic disenchantment with the concept of drives. Bowlby was among the first to declare that it doesn't seem right to reduce all the infant's strivings to sexuality and aggression. What he noticed instead was the infant's need for attachment to the caregiver, which he didn't consider to be erotic, but rather about survival. So it's easy to see that his attachment theory falls squarely into the task area of what Freud's forgotten self-preservative drives could have conceptualized. Also, it simply made no sense, as implied by the idea of aggression as a primal drive, that we would attack or destroy anything just to satisfy our aggressive or destructive drives. Nobody is aggressive just to be aggressive. Instead, it does make sense to say that we become assertive and ultimately aggressive or even destructive when we feel threatened in our survival or in the pursuit of our sexual interests. Freud got it right in 1909 when he stated that both drives need the capacity to become aggressive. Hence, we should analyze aggression as an intensified expression of either preservative needs or sexual, including narcissistic desires, 
or both at the same time, arising whenever their goals are or appear to be thwarted. Most stunning, however, seems the fact that since 1920, psychoanalysis has turned a blind eye towards the urge to preserve ourselves and our objects. This urge is immediate, spontaneous, irrepressible and powerful. We are driven to survive. When our health, safety or well-being, in short our survival, is at risk, all we think and care about, all we do, is aimed at preserving and protecting ourselves. And the same is true for our objects. If they are endangered, we rush to protect them from harm. Whether by flight or fight, whether anxiously or furiously, and notably whether the danger is real or the per perceived threat is the fruit of infantile, neurotic or psychotic imagination. We are driven to escape or parry the danger. The need for self and object preservation may turn aggressive and destructive, depending on the level of the experienced threat. And while we fight for safety and survival, our sexual strivings are put on hold. Clearly, the preservative drives have to be called primal and essential, requiring a place right next to the sexual drives. Why did this basic fact of human mental life lie dormant for 100 years, a sort of sleeping beauty? Freud's preoccupation with the culture of sexual repression in turn of the century Vienna may come to mind. Then both world wars pushed the matter of aggression and destruction to the fore. Thereafter, Narcissism and borderline personality disorders seem to best capture the demands of a widening scope of psychoanalytic patients. Has time finally come to focus on how we do or don't preserve ourselves, our objects and our environment? Has psychoanalysis anything important to say about that? I think that there are a number of reasons why psychoanalysis has not yet paid attention of self and object preservation as drive activities. A few days, decades ago, the concept of drives itself was marginalized, if not obliterated, in many, but not all, psychoanalytic cultures. It was suggested that it is clinically more useful, more humane, maybe more benign, to speak about wishes or motivations, to focus on affects rather than fantasies, and to talk about the body instead of the drives. This turn eliminated or smoothed the uncanny, wild and scary element of human irrationality, which Freud had pointed out, namely, that we are powerfully driven by unconscious forces and that our ego this relatively weak rider on the horse of nature must struggle to even begin to control and steer these urges. Was this an exaggeration? Shouldn't we think of ourselves as homo sapiens, hence knowing what we are doing? Yes, 
But remember, we humans share 98.4% of our genome with a chimpanzee. So we better not delude ourselves about our superior capacity to tame the primitive urges of our animalistic nature. And ever since Freud, we should know that we, were, we are only aware of what is conscious and not of the deep, wild world of our unconscious. Under the surface of our patients' even most articulate communications, the force of drives is continuously at work. Now, if we pick up this basic idea that we are driven, how do we understand and position a preservative drive as well as Freud's death drive into the psychoanalytic model of the mind? And how would this work, theoretically and practically? What would we win with this conception? Here is, in a nutshell, my answer to these questions about drive theory. We begin with and maintain Freud's assumption of a life drive and a death drive, both striving virtually, endlessly, each in its own direction, one towards eternal life and the other towards final death. We conceive of the infant's hunger as a sense of starvation, eliciting the fear of death, a drive towards death, a death drive. It is then the interference of the nursing object that stops this rush towards death and introduces for the first time what self-preservation is at this point, namely being fed, held, kept clean and safe, etc. Thus, it is the object that introduces self-preservation by structuring and limiting the death drive and building protective screens against the surge towards death. Screens, that is structures, which define the function of the various partial preservative drives. If these energy-absorbing, containing and guiding structures aren't solidly enough established, a draft towards death will remain and continuously pose a risk to self and object preservation, in the end, to the survival of self and object. And the same process can be stipulated on the side of the life drives. It is the structuring intervention of the loving object that introduces self and object love the erotic pleasures of sexuality. Finally, there is another sub subtle but important reason for the lack of traction of Freud's self-preservative drives, namely the missing energy term, which made it difficult to talk about their activities, appearances, investments and functions. When we speak about a patient's libidinal strivings, investments or objects, we immediately understand that we mean sexuality in the widest sense, including all the sublimated and derivative forms of its expressions. In that very sense, we should think of self and object preservation 
not only regarding the physical survival of ourselves and our objects, but also in terms of all derivative and sublimated forms of care and attentiveness. To better address this wide-ranging perspective, as well as for practical reasons, we need a theoretical energy term for the preservative and death drives, one that is as removed from everyday language as is libido. That's why I have suggested calling the energy of the preservative drives Lethe. In Greek mythology, Lethe is the name of a river that flows from the world of the living to the underworld of the death. The term Lethe allows us to think and talk about lethic feelings, lethic fantasies, lethic tendencies, lethic objects, and the like. Now, how exactly does psychoanalytic drive theory, which is first and foremost part of metapsychology, translate into clinical work? The answer is easy in principle and not so easy in practice. The easy part refers to Freud's insight that every drive elicits ideas that are in keeping with its aims. Basically, if we are hungry, a sandwich may come to mind. If we are sexually excited, we think of our lover. Our ideas always speak the language of our drives. We can distinguish between two major categories. Lethic ideas, which are concerned with caretaking, protection, health and disease, hygiene, fatigue, envy, greed, danger, misery, feelings of sadness, comfort, sorrow, guilt, mourning, etc. And libidinal ideas, which revolve around love, curiosity, enjoyment, jealousy, rivalry, exploration, excitement, competition, invention, art, beauty, fun, happiness, etc. The not-so-easy part relates to the conception of drive mixtures, that is, our ideas always integrate both libidinal and lathic elements. I have argued that structures come about by combining the energies and ideas of both primal drives with regard to self and object in a dynamically stable unit. They are compromises of wish and defense and relate self and object. They are homeostatic, dynamically stable drive repression units. Still, despite the complicating factor of these mixtures, Through their combinations, we can recognize particular leanings. For instance, if we speak of cooking or dining out, we may tend towards a preoccupation with either the health value of a meal, a lethic interest, or with the deliciousness and beauty of its arrangement, a libidinal interest. Or we might buy a pair of shoes following ergonomic and practical consideration, which are lethic, or with an eye for their elegance and beauty, the libidinal investment, or ultimately 
we may choose the middle ground, coming up with a compromise. Elegant enough shoes that are still comfortable and practical. With the concept of preservative and sexual drives, psychoanalysts may notice these leanings, may more clearly see conflicts about the one or the other side, and may also learn how patients tend to resolve these conflicts or prioritize various factors. Moreover, listening to our patients' conscious stream of thoughts, memories and associations will eventually reveal that we are what we are used to calling a pattern, which is a structural term. But what we hear is actually the trajectory of their main tendencies, namely a predominance of the one or the other's drives activities, an imbalance that creates the specific problem they are presenting. For instance, Is there a preoccupation with lethic concerns about the self, as in hypochondria, or about the other, for instance, the helicopter parent, the helper syndrome, or a flagrant lack thereof, for instance, in risk-taking behavior, neglect, carelessness? Or are there abundant fantasies about libidinal pleasures regarding the self, for instance, narcissistic or romantic daydreams, or the other, idealizing of objects, or are they totally missing, lack of love for and interest in self or other? And if so, the question is why? What are the unconscious lethic or libidinal fantasies that lie at the bottom of these problems? It is this general trajectory of the clinical material in a particular phase of the analysis overall that may expose the organization of significant unconscious drive activities, which otherwise would remain obscured under the multifaceted surface of the patient's daily reports, stories, memories and musings. The theory of the two primal drives enables us to realize these different tendencies and analyze their particular functions, including the defensive ones, at any point in the analysis. For all these reasons, I advocate the reintroduction of drive theory into our clinical and theoretical thinking, and particularly the elaboration and exploration of the preservative drives. The development, workings, challenges and deviations of self and object preservation have not yet been sufficiently focused on and are far from being fully understood in psychoanalysis. There remains, remains much to explore, to learn, to consider, or we could say to care about. And you could make an important contribution to this new area of psychoanalytic research.